You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. The Catholic Psyche Podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not intended to take the place of medical or mental health treatment, therapy, or diagnosis. You should always consult a trained mental health or medical professional for such treatment. You're listening to the Catholic Psyche Podcast. This is Deacon Basil, and uh, for round two, you... This is the, the round two for a special guest, I should say. You are the only repeat guest so far on the Catholic Psyche podcast. Uh, I am here with Dean Theophilus, uh, who is uh, addiction counselor from the Manzio Center. Um, I figured out a way of, of figuring out how to pronounce your guys' name. I just really hit the man in Manzio because then it's the, not the Mancio, it's Manzio Center. Um, I don't know. If, did, did I pronounce that right, actually, now that I've come up with a way of remembering it? Uh uh, actually, I think it's the the man, the man, not the man. Dang it! I know. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Now I've completely developed a way of remembering your your guys's name, which is completely uh, incorrect. But yeah. Okay. The Monsio Center, uh, which is located in Illinois, uh, Dean is a licensed professional counselor uh, in the state of Illinois and a uh, specialist in the addictions world. And if you are, uh, highly recommend you guys listen back to our conversation from a couple of weeks ago. I think it's posted end of May, um, mid May, um, and it's really worthwhile. But we wanted to follow up on this idea of addiction. Because, you know, addictions, uh, at least in my professional experience, my, at least in my professional experience, uh, I would say that it is one of those things that has been a pretty consistent uh, problem within the lives of many clients that at times clients don't even realize they have addictions or they do, but they don't really want to work on them. They're working on sort of symptoms of addictions at times. You're shaking your head as if this makes a lot of sense. And, um, and then at other times they come in specifically for an addiction. They kind of wonder, well, is this an addiction or maybe they're explicitly seeking an addiction, uh, addiction work. And very often therapists are not really qualified um, to be working with addictions because they're not specialists with you. So I think one of the kind of key things that, that I wanted to talk about today was just kind of the tip, typical way in which addictions work is done uh, within the larger sort of cultural aspects. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about kind of the difference between the way you and I might be treating things because just because a therapist does it differently doesn't mean one's right or one's wrong. I'm right, but that's, you know, that's okay. It's, oh. it's, uh, no. <laughs> uh, but I think that that uh, could be a, a really kind of worthwhile conversation. So, yeah. So Dean, can you tell us a little bit about the, uh, the kind of just general model of addiction treatment right now? Yeah. So there's, if you kind of cross the country, if you were, uh, clients were coming in with addiction and the, the standard way it's been approached in our country is through a treatment model. And actually, uh, Minnesota, the state where I got my education from, actually has called the Minnesota model that helped, one of many actually, I think, across the country that starts with, well, if someone has addiction, you got to help them go to an inpatient facility, uh, then ideally an outpatient facility, with then even afterwards, uh, living, sober living, where you're living in an environment to maintain your sobriety. So that'd right. be the, and, the first glance. And, yeah. and, and just for clarification there, to be perfectly honest with you, I, I, it was very late into my master's program before I really <laughs> actually like connected in my head, like what an inpatient facility is versus an outpatient. And, um, and so to describe that an inpatient facility would be kind of like the classic rehab you go into a specific facility um, where you are, where you reside there. You know, I, I think the typical sort of 
Hollywood um, kind of model is uh, what 30 days or 60 days or 90 days, some kind of month variation of several months or something. Uh, and so that would be an inpatient. An outpatient would be you live at home, but you might come to the facility every day or some variation of that, or maybe once a, once a month. Well, not usually once a month, but you know, typically one, every couple of times a week or something like that. But you kind of yeah. live in your own life, but you're also seeking this kind of treatment. And so the kind of therapy that that I do, and I assume you do, is is out considered outpatient therapy. Yeah. So yeah, I mean to flesh out even more. So uh, I'll just do like a hypothetical case. So someone has severe, severe drinking. We're talking, you know, uh, you know, over, you know, liters of vodka a night. Um, you know, blackout drunk. They can barely move without drinking. Usually, what they initially be sent to is a detox, which is. People have probably heard this before. It's a medical facility where you're literally detoxing, getting the alcohol out of your system. It's actually a very, a very hard experience, physical pain, delusions, a lot of alcohol withdrawal symptoms, which of course is a whole litany of you know, very hard uh, bodily effects that occur when you're getting rid of the alcohol from your system. So that's about maybe a couple of days, sometimes a week or so, but usually a couple of days. That leads into that residential facility, which is your standard, almost you know, Hollywood glorified about 28, 30 days in treatment, you're in there intensively, everything from you know, groups and individual sessions and lectures and education, that would lead to an outpatient program. There's, there's subsections of that, but just in general, outpatient would be multiple days a week, um, groups probably during the day, and then that gives you some free time in the evening to do, to do your own life and work. And then that would maybe involve sober living, where you would live in a, uh, live in a uh, housing where everyone's remaining sober, trying to uh, trying to stay sober, and then with adjunct, I think this is the world that we both uh, were part of too. Is it, it was that outpatient therapy where you have an outpatient therapist you see once or twice a week. That's kind of you know part of that journey more when you're leaving the residential world and back into the and life. and the the kind of way that I I'm curious your thoughts on this, but mm -hmm. that model. Probably, I mean, I mean, in some ways, I see that as the ideal model um, because it's really it, it, it's sort of a tapering of intensity down. But the problem is, is that a lot of times you hear these these. I went to a facility for you know thirty days, sixty days, ninety days, even, um, and then I just went back to where I was. And you know, it was it was in some ways maybe you lasted a couple of weeks or months, even or years, even. But it doesn't really radically change that. Um, the, the sort of real issues underlying the, the kind of process. I mean, I wish, I wish I could get rid of all of my problems with intensive 30 yeah. days worth of work. I mean, I would, I would be signed up and some of them can be helpful, but the, the kind of key problem that, that I'm hearing is, is that it just doesn't always work long-term. Is that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't do the full course. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think what's weird, you know, I, when I usually get response by that, you know, it, cause many times, you know, one way I've seen in the clinic, and I think this is, you've experienced too, is that you have a lot of people who are concerned. They have a loved one. It's like, what do we do? What do we do to make this work? Because I don't want my son, my daughter, my husband, my spouse, someone I care about to die from this, this disease, this addiction. And the theme I start families or individual persons with is that, you know, realize the severity of this. You know, if you're drinking heavily, you know, your life's at risk. If you're shooting up, heroin, opioids, if you're taking methamphetamines, I mean, that is a, the, the risk of life is high. Mm -hmm. And if that's been going on for, for months, for years, even we're going to need something 
radical, something big to occur to transform, uh, to, to transform things and change things in a, in a significant way to help resolve this. So maybe like a, like a primer to get people kind of in the mindset, okay, let, let's think about, let's think in these large terms. So, so it's, um, you know, another piece I talk about is time. Okay, how much time are you going to put into this? And, and I, I think you kind of mentioned a little bit in that question of like, yeah, you're right. Is, is 30 days going to change it? No. But, but guess what? It, it's going to be 30 days with, with some significant work, then three months of significant work, then six months, then two years. It's, there's, it's gonna, and it's not just like, oh, you know, here and there. It's going to ask you to challenge yourself. I, I tend to think that like when I've seen treatment facilities do it well, you know, they're, they're going to be like, hey, guess what? We're going to help you. We're going to help, you know, it's going to, it's going to be time to think and contemplate and heal and forgive. And it's going to be a place of challenge. So that's kind of answer your question, but I think that the whole like time schedule, people are so obsessed about that. And I want to prime them into like, okay, time's important. So get, let's give significant time to really address this. Um, well, yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. And as, as a therapist would say, absolutely. Yeah. And, um, not all treatment facilities are created equal. Yep. Um, there are some, and, and, and I've, I've read about this, that there are some that get a lot of funding for, with very little sort of oversight as to how the funding is actually being done. And a lot of yeah. very old models that really are not as effective as some of the newer sort of approaches uh, within those times. And I think, I, think that, I think that's an important thing. Unfortunately, most people who are not, from Hollywood um, have to look at what is what their insurance will cover but yep. you can shop around even with some insurance um, companies which is is an important point yes yeah and, and again this is this is of course this is one of the many topics of addiction to look at um, and I think it's very yes there what's happened in our I think our, our society today um, that's been a big movement ever since, frankly, if we go back to the war on drugs, is the idea that how do we address addiction? Um, I, mean, I, I, I mean, to get kind of deeper philosophical, historical, I think our nation, the United States of America, has a unique history with addiction. I mean, we ratified in our, our government, our constitution, an amendment to abolish alcohol. I mean, that, that's a very, that's a unique thing. I, 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 I don't remember, I'm, I'm Greek, I don't remember the Greek constitution or the Greek government, you know, ever banning, you know, wine and alcohol. And so um, I think because as the United States of America, we, uh, there is this, maybe this, this call to really how to, how to address this. Yeah. You have a lot of people out there with a lot of services offering there, there is some degree, a little bit too, of realizing this kind of like the time piece of, and I say a lot of people, you know, this isn't a one night fix. So I think, so one of the themes and Actually, I may I may be speaking about this in the future. Is I think because our society is very focused on results and fixing and making sure there's immediate fixtures that we can internally think about. Okay, well, okay, what's the right amount of days? Amount of time to get the right amount of actions? And of course, you know, prudence is needed in looking at you're taking the right steps. You know, make it make it as comprehensive as possible and realize that this is going to take a, a multiple months, even years, to get the full transformation you're looking for. Um, and, and again, as therapists, we know that, you know, that we know, understand that change isn't an instant thing, but I think in that mindset of like how to approach addiction treatment is okay. We'll plan this out, but it isn't just, I got the magic bullet for you. We're all, it's all done. No more problems. You're, 
loved one's great or you're great. Now you've done this program or something. Um, yeah. yeah um, that, that, and I think this is where things like AA really does a good job. Um, I know, I know we, I know we're, we were, we were chit chatting about AA before we got on there. By the way, the lighting in this office is really weird. Uh. It's like I'm sunburnt or, or I don't know from that, that, that video from, or that, that famous painting, the scream. Um, but uh. you know, the, the, the point being here is that um, AA does a really good job of this because it basically says you will always be an alcoholic. For example, you'll always be struggling with this addiction. The key about it is not so much that whether this will disappear, but rather the fact that you will be struggling with this for the rest of your life and it will always come back. I mean, I had a, I had a, he was a social worker friend of mine who, uh, mm. 45 years in AA. Um, and he, he, uh, said, you know, he can be around a table with other people drinking wine. It's not a big deal, but he always makes sure that his wine glass you know, at a, at a sort of table setting mm -hmm. is removed before he sits down. He always mm -hmm. gets rid of it before that 45 years. He's been sober, but he's still, you know, make sure of that. So he's actually been sober longer than he was alive, almost double um, what he was when he was uh, struggling with alcoholism, you know, but he's still working on these things. Yeah. And, and this is comes that it's, it's that, that mindset, which I think is, is it, it, uh, this is hard to like get across. I think I, I again, I, I don't know. I, uh, this may be the hardest one to, to get off people actually among anything about addiction treatment is that idea of like, this is a lifelong journey and that's kind of a good thing. Like I I've actually told people this in treatment. Like I actually would be discrediting you if I just said, Oh yeah, you, you do this and you'll be fine. And, and bada bing, bada boom, you know, I almost like I'm like, like a, a, a mechanic just fixing a car and like, you know, um, or, or, a you know, a yield salesman. I know I want to give you actually the full in integrity and respect that you deserve as a human being is to acknowledge that like, yeah, you're going to be on this journey, but that's going to make you the best person, the fullest person you can be. You can truly live the most meaningful life you can live. Let's why not do that with struggles and hardships and, but still with meaningfulness and joy and, and healing through that process too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So that that's the typical model, but I would say that even still, unfortunately, most people don't have this in-treatment, out-treatment auxiliary services sort of experience with these things. Yeah. Typically, typically it's it's just straight AA or some kind of NA or um, whatever kind of uh, fraternity kind of environment is yeah. there. Is that is that more or less just me, or is that pretty accurate? There, there's a, there's the history of it. And actually there's a great book called slaying the dragon. If that's ever been something that you've uh, heard of, um, I, haven't, I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't, rec I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. It's kind of a long book, but it, it talked about the kind of the history of it. it, it it's a big long, it's actually got a history textbook about addiction treatment, which is cool if you like history, but not really readable if you just wanted something to, to read. Um, right. But it talked a little about how for a period of time, I think when, when, when the number of treatment facilities were so limited, you know, AA was the only option. Um, and, and it did work and it, it was effective. Um, of course, it doesn't, doesn't announce its numbers to uphold anonymity, um, but, you know, the, the privacy of people who go there. But, you know, there was the time where there was 
you know, you have AA conventions with millions of people coming to it to show that there's been a testament to its work. Um, it's, uh, I think maybe I wonder now, you know, uh, in this special day and age, especially when treatment for addiction has increased significantly funding by state level, national level has increased. If that's changed away from going to just your local AA meeting. Um, but, uh, I mean, I mean, the history of it too is like the first, there was a period of time, you know, when AA was formed in the early, the mid, mid thirties, 1930s, you know, the only option was if you had a serious addiction issue was to be thrown in the sanitarium, thrown in a mental institute. Mm-hmm. And, and that was about it. There was an actual, uh, care. So, uh, you know, our, our nation as a whole has experienced ins and outs of, of what care we've actually offered people. Right. Absolutely. So um, we've got this this kind of thing, but most I, I would say most people are familiar with at least the idea of AA. Um, you know, one of the biggest problems with uh, I think AA I, I, as a treatment model because of our history um, with in the United States, one of the treatment problems. Well, one of the problems is that it's become so common to top of, talk about it. I mean, so many people talk, know, I, I would guarantee if you walk down the street and you ask people about AA, nine out of 10 people would at least give you a, oh, it's for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's, it's these things. But the problem with it is it's kind of like, like depression, right? People talk about depression, but depression is a very specific clinical thing that usually, at least in my experience, is different from what people think it was when they use it in sort of general language. Now, there's nothing wrong with people using sort of technical terms in general language that are even slightly different, but the key for us is to emphasize, well, what is AA? And I think I I admitted to you earlier, I know about the concept of 12 steps, but I couldn't name them. I can kind of say that I know there's an accounting process of your entire life, but I don't know. That could be step one for all I know. Um, I know that there's a I have to with, withhold my, uh, you know, like, like say that I'm powerless over something. That might be the last step. I don't think so. But that might be mm-hmm. the last step. And I think that's my, my process of um, even as a therapist who's done addictions, like, like, like worked with addictions and has um, taken coursework on addictions, I don't even know the specifics of the 12 steps. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, what are they and how do they work? <laughs> yeah. And so I, I will say in, from, from my onset, somewhat of the, of the bias and angle that I come from. So now I'll do a little bit about where I got my training from and why I approach it, the 12 steps in this way. Um, I come from a, from a clinical perspective because I got my uh, education through, and we mentioned this last podcast, the Hazleton Betty Ford Institute, which offers a training program of anyone, future aspiration, if anyone's interested in that, it's a good program in Center City, Minnesota. Um, but they offer online classes. Um, really? and yeah, they, they do now. I, I, I don't know the full specs of that. Uh, but I, I, what I've heard is that they do offer flex classes and you can get, uh, maybe a little plug for that. You know, you, you can get a one year, uh, addiction program and gets you the, the specials of just addiction treatment. Then this two year program, which gives you both addiction and mental health work. Um, but one of the unique things about, the Betty Ford Clinic, which we talked about last podcast, was it, it developed a whole uh, clinical system program around the 12 steps. It created a manual, a clinical manual. Um, and so with that being said, I, I think I, I, I want to approach it through that way. So 
you know, the 12 steps, you know, as it is a self-help organization that you can go to communities all across the world and this nation for those of, of people coming together, a community-based program to help people stay sober and maintain sober. The, the only requirements they say is they have the desire to want to stop using. Um, and with that being said, uh, the whole hope is if you join this, this program, that you work through the first step through the 12th step um, in order. Um, and in doing so, you, you, uh, you gain not just the skills of how to maintain sober, but you've gained a new mindset. It transforms your mindset, the way you're thinking, and your relationship to yourself and others, uh, which you, know, you continue on that process as you keep going to those meetings. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think that would be a good, good standpoint. So, so I just want to make sure I understand. So it's, a, it's based off of it, and it's sort of like the intensive preparatory thing for the continued work, not preparatory, that makes it sound, but it's, the, it's, it's, it's a way of you continue the work through the 12-step model later but it's sort of entirely it's not it's not coming at it from a completely different angle like a lot of the sort of treatment that i would do in the situation where there's almost no connection with the larger 12-step program and there is no connection with the larger 12-step so after therapy they're kind of well good luck yeah i I, the way i would say that 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 facilities like hazelden have used the 12 steps and I would say particularly with, with um, you know, facilities, even facilities, inpatient, intensive outpatient facilities, is that they will offer to you a, a comprehensive understanding of each step and in how to in, approach it in depth so that when you do uh, start going to more uh, meetings, uh, outside community-based meetings, you will have a better sense of how to approach it, that you will understand its language better. Again, it doesn't mean that you still can't learn the 12 steps in their, their entirety and their fullness going to community meetings. But I think facilities that try to, that say they, they do 12-step facilitation, that's the goal. Um, and uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, what are the 12 steps? <laughs> yeah, so, so I, I don't mind. Let's, let's, I'm just going to read them out. So we... And I should say there will, there yeah. will be uh, them linked down in the description. They will be oh, um, yes. specifically typed out for you. Yeah. So, so well, and, and so, of course, you can always, so the, the, the primary text, the, the text of 12 Steps is called the Big Book. Alcoholics Anonymous, it's a the big blue book. Um, it was written by their founder, Bill W. Uh, and Dr. Bob. Um, and... If you kind of ask, I want to learn about the 12 steps, you know, the first thing to do is to get this book. You can buy online. Um, but to read a lot of the 12 steps um, uh, is, uh, there, I'm just going to read 12. So number one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Step four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Step five, admitted to God, to ourselves, to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. Step six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Step seven, humbly ask him to remove our shortcomings. Step eight, made a list of all the persons we have harmed 
and became willing to make amends to them. Step nine, may direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Step 10, continue to take a personal inventory, and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Step 11, thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him, praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we tried to carry this message to alcoholics and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Wow. Yeah. So what, you know, the, 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 the thing that surprises me, I think, um, although it didn't surprise me because we had this conversation beforehand, <laughs> but, but the thing that, that I think is really stands out to me is just how spiritual it is. And we were talking about this beforehand, that there seems to be this kind of um, anti-AA 12-step kind of model because of this sort of subtle, like, oh, well, it doesn't explicitly say God in this, in this passage. Um, yeah, yeah, it doesn't. Um, yeah. There are, you know, that's, that's okay, I think, though. <laughs> um, because it was based off of Christian principles. Um, mm -hmm. It was based off of it. The founders, correct me if I'm wrong, they were practicing Christians and remained through their lives. Yeah. Uh, so here, here's a brief history of the origins, which, which is, again, is just shocking even to say that because once you start looking at the history, you really start realizing it's, it's uniqueness of Christianity. So, uh, so, so Bill W is, is, is man living in the 1930s. He's on his rope. He's had a terrible alcohol problem. He can't, um, he can't stay sober. He's tried, he's losing everything. His life's a mess. Through a few changes in his life, he has this spiritual awakening and realizes that, that to have some sort of spirituality is so important in his life. And one of the things that helped influence that idea was he had a friend who was getting, who was getting sober through this group called the Oxford Group. And the Oxford Group was, a, or, was an organization in the turn of the 20th century um, that was a group of all Christians coming together to live a better Christian life. And literally, uh, there's a text, you can actually get online for free, called What is the Oxford Group, that Bill W. almost takes verbatim out of. Like the ideas of the, of the big book and other writings he has is almost copy and paste from this Oxford Group. And just a little bit of a brief explanation of that Oxford Group. It's a wonderful text to read. Actually, it's one of my top 10 readings that I ever read. It, it comes from the holiness movement. And the holiness movement it's a form of the Methodism, is John Wesley. And this is even crazy to connect back the whole ancient Christianity of, of, of the power of ancient Christian spirituality. John Wesley and the Holiest Movement was directly related to ancient spiritual fathers, particularly St. Ephraim the Syrian. Now, again, that's a whole different can, but, but just the mere fact that there was a, there's that lineage between this movement and then the teachings of AA coming back to ancient Christian principles is pretty profound. Um, and, um, and the, and by the way, before it was called AA, it was called the James club from the book of James, one of the epistles, um, and, and Bill W's, uh, decision to take off the word Jesus Christ and to use the word as God, as we understood him was a big issue. It was a big point. 
Um, but it wasn't so much to the degradation of Christianity, which, which is, it kind of leads to another point of this is that I think, I think the, the tens of the, of the 12 step group is the prerequisite is to those desiring to be sober. It, it, it doesn't, it doesn't ask for, I feel we talked about this. It's a is not asking you to, for your salvation. Their, their mission is not that there are other groups to do that, but they don't, since it, not since they don't say that doesn't mean they say we're poo poo that they're just saying, Hey, we have developed this system that we think can help you get sober. That is our, that is our end game, our goal. So just some points to think about to, to observe, because I think there's another point that we mentioned was when, when people who are critics or maybe skeptical of AA, they, I want to respect their desire because they know, and I think as, as us being Christians, you know, the, the, the love and desire of what salvation come through Jesus Christ. And we don't, we want to respect that. And, and yes, of course, uh, we are, we are very blessed as Christians to have, you know, Christ, the way come through Jesus Christ. And, um, a never claims to give that salvation to you. And, and they, they're, they're not, there's never a negation. There's never a, a battle back and forth with that. They exist in harmony. And many of the, many of the followers does do AA, but still attend church services and practice their faith. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the, the kind of key thing about it is that, I mean, part of the reason why um, they've removed the name Jesus Christ and put in a higher power is not to say that God is not the higher power, but rather to allow it to be a more widespread kind of process. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, you can dilute something into nothingness, but I don't yes. think that's what AA did. And, and as a testament to the fact that it is so ubiquitous within our culture, um, that, that, and, and a testament to the Christian principles underneath it that, that are still present. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I, would, I agree that there's, there's some real problems when we start to pretend like um, that, that, that God can't use the term higher power, that it has to explicitly be only Jesus Christ as the only higher power, um, because you're just going to miss a lot of people. And, and it's just not going to work for many, many people. To, to explicitly have that. And quite frankly, if you have to be pretty darn arrogant to think that when Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, um, he really meant it, but he really just really wanted to make sure that you made sure people knew he was that, as opposed to like they go through purity, a purification of whatever that is, and they find him at the end. And I think for me, I've always had this real hope that when people are healthy, then Christ can, they can see Christ moving in their lives. But that means that he has to be, that they have to be healthy long before that. And I think that's really a pretty key point. Um, yeah, I'm just yeah. really, I'm very, I, I'm, I, I personally just don't understand the sort of freak out that typically comes with these, these kinds of things um, around AA. It's a phenomenal program. And, and it's really, um, it's changed many lives. And I think to, you know, um, the, the church, the church has always said by the East or West, by their fruits, you can discern the presence of the Holy spirit and the fruits of AA are pretty darn clear. They help a heck of a lot of people. So, um, 
so I'm just kind of curious, one of the, you know, we're, we're rapidly moving through time here, but yeah. one of the kind of key things that, that, that really comes to mind for me in addition to all of this is that um, there needs to be a kind of, well, what's the best way to kind of move forward? And well, the way in which I typically do addictions work, and I know this is, this is different from your model in some ways, but the way in which I typically do addictions work if the person is in a system, in other words, if they're married or in a family or something, is that we kind of usually work at that higher systemic level um, as opposed to the individual. And the reason for it is that if you can make systemic changes around drinking or drug use or, or, or pornography or any of the other, you know, any addiction, any addictive food, whatever, whatever it might be, any of the addictions, if you can make a systemic change, then typically things are will last longer. However, there are some definite downsides to trying to do systemic changes. Um, we chatted a little bit about them before. But I'm just curious, like, if you got a phone call from someone, what would be your model and the advantages of that? And then maybe I can talk about my model and the advantages of mine. Um, and, and, and maybe we could just talk about why they're different. Yeah. It, one of the things where the the sense I've kind of taken, particularly in a, in a private practice clinical setting with with individual therapy, is is and I think we talked about it in previous podcast was my initial conversation. I always start with like, kind of taking a look at what is their environment around them currently right now. You know, what are we working with their internal resource external resources because the and I think I kind of keep try to keep my own principle of doing uh, individual therapy is that, well, if you're going to need, you may need some outside sources to help you with this. I'm, I'm first and foremost, not if, if someone's still in their active addiction and it's becoming more severe, I may have to tell them we can't continue seeing until you actually get more intense treatment options uh, uh, to your, to your uh, done completed or that you're attending outpatient therapy. Um, that, and that's not so much to, to like trying to like shame them or belittle them, but that we need, we need making sure we need to make sure there are other resources at your disposal on that community level and on a, on a, on a more structured level to help them. Um, and then, you know, what I would say if I'm being a 12 step facilitator, who's, who uses individual therapy in that, that way, um, my, my goal isn't like somehow immediately get them like, you got to admit you're powerless. And like, I am not going to do therapy with you until you admit you're th powerless. I, but I think I would be mindful of kind of the greater need of, of, of how severe, how severe this is, is happening. I, I think, I think to kind of differentiate between maybe models and maybe more harm reduction or, or um, that don't even like view addiction as even a problem. I think, I think, I really hit home this idea for them in my work is that unless you have some level of abstinence or decrease, significant decrease, you, you won't be fully aware of yourself. There'll be too much chaos, too much problems at hand, too much um, uh, uh, just fog in their own awareness because the substance they're using. So um, I, I try to make through throughout therapy that that's being done properly. They're aware of that. Um, and if they are maintaining sobriety, I think my, my work would be then in that kind of 12 step kind of mindset is, okay, let's, let's deepen our awareness of our own moral inventory. That four step says taking a fearless moral inventory. Can we help kind of deepen that for them? Not do that for them. I wouldn't do four steps for them, but maybe kind of pick out 
you know, deepening their own self-awareness, deepening their inventory, and deepening what it means to look at their character defects in a more, uh, more even honest. meticulous, honest way. Yeah. Um, so, I yeah, I think I think that would be kind of the the, the major things I would say viewing myself as a therapist who has twelve-step leanings. Yeah, and I think that's I think that makes a lot of sense and is really quite quite good. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the reason why we typically work with couples, uh, at least I work with couples around addiction, uh, was mm-hmm. that was the model that was available on the training that I took a while back. Um, but uh, yep. The, yep. the primary reason for it, um, I would say, is that typically if someone's coming for couples counseling, they have a little bit more self-awareness. Um, mm-hmm. But the kind of keen insight that I think the couples work says is that you also have a side to it where um, – in, in, in the individual work, you still have programs like Al-Anon. And I think that's the other side mm-hmm. is that you have the person who's addicted, but you also have effects of the people who are around the person who is addicted. Um, mm-hmm. And so that that can be really quite important. And I think it's perfectly legitimate for someone who is um, married or related or, you know, around people who are in treatment for counseling, even in, in, in individual addiction situations, it is perfectly legitimate for them to seek their own treatment um, in order to help them through this process as well and, and find yeah. healing. Yeah. There's, there's this concept that I use particularly with families and, and couples with addiction because I've been kind of, as an addiction guy in my facility, they kind of send me the families with addictions, is <laughs> called the three C's. And this is a concept that both 12, uh, AA and Al-Anon have. And the three C's are you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. And also them just being catchy, you know, slogans to use, I think there's kind of a deeper idea to that because, yeah, what does it mean to understand you didn't cause it? Because a lot of times people are filled with guilt and shame that they've created this mess, that they've been the culprit of all the misfortunes. Cure it, which is we just talked about at the beginning of this whole podcast. I think families come individuals come, they want, okay, there's been chaos in my life, just swipe it away and we're all good. What does it mean to understand that like, there really isn't a cure, there's a, there's a growth, there's a journey. And that's, that's as even more sweet than just a silver bullet. And then the last one is control, because um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, you, know, you, you probably have seen in your practice, you have families who will like, I will, I will lock my loved one in a safe to make sure they don't drink again. And yep. I did it, I did it Dean, I locked them in a safe and they won't drink. It's like, well, you, you, you can't, like people have, you know, the choices, they'll make choices in their life and you know, you can't control that. You can't control the other choices they make. You can yeah, support, you can love them, you can engage with them, you can influence them. But you know, we're not puppet masters controlling other people. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's fair. Well, um, unfortunately, I saw the time and we need to yes. leave it there, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it was such a pleasure. And I think, I yeah. think the kind of thing about addictions is that there's still hope. It's dark, yes. but there's still hope. And I think the fact that your profession and specialization as a therapist exists really does mean that there is a lot of hope out there. And I think, mm-hmm. I think, um, all of us should have a certain level of, um, a certain level of hope for those of our loved ones, which might be struggling with addictions of whatever type, um, yes. that, that, that things can really, um, can turn around, uh, with the help of God. So yeah. why don't we go ahead and leave it? Yeah. 
Okay, I make two book plugs. I was Please. mentioning this. Yes, so two, and I think we mentioned in the last podcast was uh, the steps. The two books are the uh, for those who are interested in twelve steps and also connection to ancient Christianity, Eastern Christianity, um, both Orthodox and, and Catholic, would be um, one of steps of transformation. An Orthodox priest explores the twelve steps by Archimandrites Miletios Weber. Um, uh, that's a wonderful take uh, and a very short, powerful read. Another one is uh, Breathing Underwater, Spirituality of the Twelve Steps by Richard Rohr, mm. uh, a Catholic monk. And I, these two books, wonderful, wonderful reads, uh, will just get, understand the Twelve Steps better and understand how you can integrate that just in your spiritual practice. Absolutely. And those links are down in the, uh, in the description. The other one is, um, is uh, Father Weber's, Archimandrite Weber's, uh, we'll put his video, actually, of oh, him yes. describing some of these things. Um, he did it in uh, very honest and deeply honest. Mm -hmm. It's a wonderful uh, YouTube video. So we'll put that as a link down in the uh, description as well. So, well, thank you again, Dean. Yes. I really appreciate it. And we will catch you next time on yeah. the Catholic Psyche Podcast. Take care.